that's one of the things I'm worried most about because women, minorities, uh, and other kind of disenfranchised um, populations are most drawn to remote work. Uh, if they're the ones that are doing it, and if we don't solve for the uh, equity problems, you know, being people being getting raises and promotion because they're seen all the time, uh, those are very real risks. And so if we don't put the checks and balances in place to make sure that doesn't happen, then we're, we're going to even widen the gap. Um, and, you know, that, that really scares me. You're listening to episode 38 of the Happy Space podcast. Today, I speak with Kate Lister, founder of Global Workplace Analytics. You'll enjoy her candid take on the future of work. Welcome to the Happy Space podcast, where productivity meets inclusivity and everyone gets things done. Hello, I'm Claire Kumar, highly sensitive executive coach, speaker, and your host. Studies show that diversity leads to better business outcomes. So doesn't it make sense to invite everyone's richest contribution? Yet too many people are invited to burn out or opt out, and we are squandering talent. On this show, we'll explore a two-part solution. Part one, cultivating sustainable performance, the individual design of work and life to preserve our energy so we can keep contributing. And two, designing inclusive performance, the design of spaces, cultures, products, and services which invite the richest participation. I hope you enjoy these conversations and find inspiration and encouragement for everyone deserves a happy space. Oh, I'm so excited for you to be joining me in this conversation. You're in for a treat. I'll be speaking with Kate Lister. She is the president and founder of Global Workplace Analytics. She and her team of researchers really do groundbreaking research on what's going on in the world and also what to expect. And uh, she's definitely got some ideas that you're going to want to hear today from understanding why leaders are clinging to control, what they might do instead, some real optimism for continuing growth in the distributed form of work. That's her preferred term for remote work. And I fully agree with that term. Myself, I've worked in a distributed workforce um, many, many years ago. So became comfortable with dealing in an abstract format with no video to fall back on. So I think that uh, you're in for a treat today. Be sure to reach out on social media. You'll find the connections. Uh, my cat just turned off. Ellie, you just turned off the light. There we go. Let's fix that. Thanks, Ellie. Uh, he's here. You'll see cat, uh, cat Mio appearances of both Theo and Ellie probably in this episode. They both were here on my desk for parts of it. And uh, you'll also see Kate's dog. So uh, please enjoy this episode and meeting the wonderful Kate Lister. Kate Lister, I am so thrilled and honored that you've uh, taken some time to join me on the Happy Space podcast. You are Thank the you. leader of global workplace analytics and quite frankly, a thought leader in the world in this conversation on the future of work. And I'm so very happy to have you here. Welcome. I'm delighted. Thank you. Thanks for, for inviting me. Uh, my great pleasure. Now, listeners, you're in for a treat. And I think I have a billion questions, but I'm going to pare it down to a few. And I think one of the first ones is coming off 
we had a conversation not too long ago to prepare for this conversation. And I asked you what you thought was behind leaders moving towards mandates and sort of putting their thumb down. And my hypothesis was that part of it might be due to a challenge around the abstract nature of managing work now. And you very clearly told me, I think it's about control. <laughs> and I, yeah, and I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit more on why you think leaders are there, what might be keeping them there, and is there some element of fear involved that they need to move to control? I think this has been the problem with the concept of what we used to call it telework, remote work uh, for, gosh, four or five decades. Jack Nillis <laughs> invented the term in 1973. You used to have all your, your minions, your, your people in front of you. You know, I, I picture the, the, the manufacturing plant and the, the balcony and the, the manager standing over his people and being able to see them. And the people that are in those roles tend to be <laughs> older, grayer, <laughs> and, you know, probably have that kind of legacy feeling about how to manage. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you get to now manage, you pick people you can't see, you've gotten used to managing by butts and seats. You, you know, you haven't really been managing. Um, I call it babysitting. Uh, and unfortunately, when you start treating people like children, eventually they'll act like children, not make their own decisions and uh, not be autonomous. So I think a lot of it is legacy. And I would like to think that as, as younger people become managers, they, they won't have that legacy. The other possibility is that by the time they become the leaders, they'll have drunk the Kool-Aid <laughs> and, and, and we'll be back at this again. Uh, because there are a lot of young leaders that are also saying, I want you back in the office. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just, I think you, yeah, you use the word abstract. There's just this, this, I can't see people. I can't, I don't understand if they're working. Most people who are managers became managers because they were good in some role. Mm -hmm. They were probably good doers. And then they're promoted to managers, but they're not prepared to be managers. And I think there's kind of this attitude that, oh, you know, it should be easy. This is not something we should have to train for. And it very much is, whether it's in the office or out of the office, managers need to be better trained. Yeah, I'm writing down managing the nature, the abstract nature of hybrid work. I think that ought to be a new productivity workshop that, <laughs> that I create. I've been talking <laughs> about leadership skills in the hybrid for a hybrid world. But this, this sense of managing work that you can't see, I think it is tougher. And I think it's the visual cues. You know, you could open your door. Not only would you see the people that relate to the tasks that you're meant to be on top of, but you also had that serendipitous interaction, which I also, also think is much harder in the virtual world and requires a whole lot more intention to even get close to it. Yeah, so a couple of things there. Do you think there's any fear around this the control piece, because I, I was working with someone last year and they had a really amazing opportunity from a growth perspective. And the immediate reflex was, I need all hands on deck. I need everybody back in the office. Mm -hmm. And I, from my perspective, there was an absence of reflection and strategic thinking and planning. It was a real Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to get everybody back and then we'll figure it out rather than what do I really need to ask of everybody? 
if you go back several years, five years, seven years, some of the notable uh, reversals on remote work, you know, even then, were the companies that were in trouble. So everybody likes to point to Best Buy bringing their people back. They were in, in, in deep financial trouble when that happened. Everybody points to the IBM and them recalling their remote workers, gosh, I don't know, five, 10 years ago. And again, remember, they were very that much. Meyer and Yahoo, remember? Mm -hmm. Yep, remember Meyer, 2013, yep. I think. <laughs> yeah, those companies. It's that circle the wagon. Let's get everybody mm -hmm. together. Let's let's figure this out. And I, I think the other thing is, leaders feel like they need to lead, instead of, so instead of saying, you know, we're going to think about this and we're going to test this and we're going to try some new things, mm -hmm. they feel like they need to you know, put a mark there and say, no, this is what we're going to do. They don't, they're not good with ambiguity. They don't want to show ambiguity because it seems less decisive. And so, you know, there's a lot going on there. And, and I, I guess I did it too, pointing to the older managers, but I'm, I'm seeing it in younger managers too. It's, you know, part of it is not wanting to change. It, I've heard from particularly older managers, yeah, I've only got three or four years. I just want things to go back to normal. <laughs> rewind, rewind. I want to press rewind, even if we can clearly say that rewind, rewinding wasn't good enough. What what we go, would go back to wasn't necessarily working, right? One right. of the stats I show in my leadership workshops is that 61% of people were lonely before the pandemic. That's when you had the social connection and all of that. So I think there are other problems that potentially leaders are not wanting to see or admit to or address. And they think that just going back is going to fix it. But it's actually cultural redesign that's that's kind of necessary. Yeah. Martha Johnson, when she was the head of the USGSA, going back at least 10 years, maybe longer. But she piloted one of the very first programs of activity-based work, no assigned desk, mm -hmm. when they were transforming the headquarter, the GSA headquarter building in downtown DC. You, can you share what GSA is? I'm sorry, General Services Administration, the U.S. General Services Administration. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and so they transformed a building that was intended for 2,500 to a building that, hold, that held 4,000 people because of the addition of remote work and unassigned seating. And she had a line that I, I, I just loved. Remote work doesn't create management problems. It reveals them. That's where that came from. That's such a good line. It is. And, yeah. and you know, I think we can say the same thing of the pandemic in many ways. It revealed that managers weren't managing re by results. It revealed that people were lonely, that people were stressed, that culture was declining. I mean, all of those things that are now being blamed on remote work, the research shows were there, the trends were there beforehand. Yes. Yeah. As was the trend for people to want remote work. I think we were at 4% or so beforehand. I was an early adopter way back in the late 90s. I, I, I really knew it was better for me, but we were seeing slow growth. What's your perspective on just by how many years did we advance the trajectory that was already in play for remote work? Today's episode of the Happy Space Podcast is sponsored by ClaireKumar.com. With sensitivity, curiosity, and courage, I serve three groups asking the tough questions that lead to meaningful answers. 
Number one, I coach ambitious leaders to design for well-being and achieve next-level work-life integration. Number two, I mic drop thought bombs, that's bombs as in B-A-L-M-S, in keynotes and workshops, helping organizations achieve the business imperative that is inclusivity. And three, I collaborate with brands concerned with respect for well-being on product design, marketing, and PR. If any of this piqued your interest, come find me at clairekumar.com. I'd love to speak with you. Designing inclusive performance together will lead to the richest results. Yeah, I mean, it was growing at about 10% a year for the last maybe 20 years, <laughs> which when you, you know, hear something like uh, it grew 115%, well, in 100% of a very small number is still a pretty small number, right? That's <laughs> and at the time before the pandemic, five, 10 years, all of the research that we would do showed that about 70 to 80% of people want to work from home at least part of the time after the pandemic. About 70 to 80% of people want to work from home at least part of the time. So the, the desire has always been there. And therefore, that gap is what I would say is the acceleration to have reached that level from 5% to, to 75%. It's huge. Even, even I, who've been pushing this rock uphill for almost two decades, you know, I never anticipated and, and never wanted because it didn't, it didn't give people time to prepare. I mean, if we were talking to a company prior to the pandemic about launching a, uh, a hybrid or a remote work program, we, it, it would have been a, a, a six to 12 month program that included, you know, surveys and change management and observation and, you know, all kinds of training. And skill building. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah so then boom, it, was it happened. We felt pretty good about it, you know, which kind of made me feel bad because I've been, <laughs> if it's that easy, why do we need a consultant to do it? But the fact is it wasn't that easy. You could, it could mm -hmm. feel like it was working, you know, and that maybe would get you to 60%. Mm. And I feel like that's where we are right now. Uh, companies are saying, well, you know, it worked pretty well. We'll just continue to do that. But mm -hmm. that's not going to optimize the practice. What they're leaving on the table is, you know, productivity and fear and loneliness and the, the opportunity to use this new way of working to actually improve the way we worked. I totally agree with you. I totally <laughs> agree with you. Yeah, it's the opportunity that I think when when I look at the stalemate that's at play right now in this tension tug of war, I think we've got to detangle that and start to get back to an op optimistic message of there's opportunity here. If we're willing to exhale a little and step away from the control reflex, there's real opportunity and redesign potential. But I think people... My perception is that people aren't sure how to get at it. Do you have a Absolutely. sense about? Yeah, they either don't know it, and yeah. if they do, they don't really know what to do about it. You know, I kind of equate it to when we first got cell phones, you only use them in the house. Or when we first got smartphones, we only used them to make phone calls, right? So now we have all these new oh. ways of working, but we really haven't changed the practices and the processes. Yes. Uh, we've used a technology to replicate the way we were doing things in the past rather than improve. I mean, everybody talks about reinventing the water cooler. Well, who said the water cooler was was a good thing to begin with? You know, there's lots of evidence to suggest it wasn't, that it was very exclusive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the biggest example of this right now is how we do hybrid meetings. 
Mm -hmm. uh, we learned during the pandemic that uh, people who didn't feel like they had a voice at the table when they were the one hybrid, per one, one distributed person and everybody else was in the room, suddenly they felt included. Yes. Um, and it was also more inclusive of people that don't speak up in meetings. You know, so whether you're introverted, whether it's not a first language, English is not a first language, whether you're neurodiverse, whether you're a junior employee and you're intimidated, whether there's a bully in the room, you know, or whatever. Yeah. We can make that better by using some of the techniques that we learned during the pandemic. Most companies learned during the pandemic, but I'm not seeing a lot of that happening. Yeah, I'm seeing I'm seeing a lot of frustration and um, I'm seeing different things happening in different offices. My um, daughter's interviewing for different jobs. So I'm hearing a little bit about some of the modern workplaces through her a little bit now. And one place that she was looking at has a different team coming in on a specific day of the week. So they're, they've shrunk their footprint. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm assuming they've shrunk their footprint. But And I said, oh, can you choose your day? Nope. It has to be the team is going in on that day and that's the day of the week. And it's only one day. And I thought it was so interesting because as a young person, you know, starting to navigate work, do I buy a car? Do I not buy a car? Do I Uber there? Do I not like the, the, the logistics around the construct of work? What I'm trying to get to in a question here is that employers, I don't know how much they think about what is around somebody taking a job. They think a lot about the vision, the values, the mission. They might think about the alignment of that person, but the whole construct of work can be what blows up a job being a suitable fit for someone. Right. And I'm wondering what you're noticing in there in terms of the consciousness of, of organizations around looking at what we're inviting people to. I guess we're calling it workplace experience. And that means different things to different people in the in the corporate real estate arena, which is kind of where I come from. It's about you know, how do we make the office an attractive place to come? How do we how do we recreate the office so that it supports the kind of work that people are actually going to be doing here? And so that's not sitting behind a desk and sitting alone. It's going to be more collaborative. So we need more social areas. But we can't forget those private areas, because when you come in to do social work, social work, but collaborative work, yeah. you're not going to do it all day. You know, you're, you you still need a place to check out, uh, a place to do heads down work. It worries me a little bit that we're going to, the pendulum's going to swing too far. From the HR side, when we talk about the employee experience, it's just as you say, I mean, your experience with an organization starts before you even apply. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, it starts with your impressions in the market of, is this a good company? You know, yeah. what have I heard about them? Do they, you know, did they get slapped for something that they did? Sorry. <laughs> my co no, 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 my no, coworker no. here. Because this is happening here right now. So <laughs> I thought, I thought I saw the, <laughs> so I probably saw a tail or something. Elliot's like, I'm here for it. You know, that's <laughs> almost every conversation who just joined us um, from YouTube listeners. Kate's dog just walked behind the screen. And I have all the patience for pets. So, oh, good. Who good was that? Yeah, that was Waldo. There's two others hanging oh, around yeah. here somewhere. <laughs> I, uh, but that's one of the things I love about the fact that I think the pandemic gave us a lens on seeing each other's lives more fully, as long as we don't commit to blurring our background, is the way we yeah. blur our days sometimes. Yeah. 
I think there's a real opportunity to connect more deeply. So the I humanity. Seen Waldo. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that, that early on in the pandemic, the CEOs, you know, sat down in their armchair and, and reached out to people, talked to people. Mm-hmm. They became human. And we, you know, we could all see one another's lives. And it sort of made it a lot harder to um, forget that we're people. Do you, you know, we've lost we, that now. Do you, I do. I mean, I thought now? we. I think we lost it in the first year of the pandemic. We stopped communicating. You know, we stopped having those town halls and having those heartfelt conversations with the uh, with leadership. And I, you know, I think that's a that's a real mistake. What were we talking about before the dog walked into the scene? Um, <laughs> yes, we were talking about the HR experience. And oh talking, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> Good thing I jot down notes. <laughs> I mean, so so it starts very very early on, and then what's the onboard? What's the application process? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a really bad process, you're going to get a, a feeling about it. Yeah. What, what's the the onboarding? What's your first day like? What's the office like? What are you know all of those yeah. things? And so, you know, that I think we need to pull those experiences together. There's a very strong. Ten, tendency toward there's HR, there's IT, there's real estate, there's sustainability and all of this. Mm-hmm. If we really want to optimize work, we have to cross those silos and mm-hmm. start working together to, to really give people the opportunity to be their best. Love that. I love that. And I, yeah, I don't think traditionally that's been there. There's the, the, the silos. Of Big that. silo. Oh, we don't talk to those people over there in HR yeah. hear it all the time. And the HR people yeah. say, what are those real estate people involved in this for? I don't, I don't see why real estate has anything to do with how we work. <laughs> so it's not a full enough understanding of the, the overlap potentially of the roles and, 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 and how we can, you know, really envelop the employee with a lot of really intentional thought. If, if we, you know, if we start to enmesh those silos a bit. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I, I was hopeful that because the pandemic kind of lofted this whole conversation to the C-suite, you know, when on the when in the New York Times front page, did you start reading about workplace trends before the pandemic? You know, nobody was talking about those kinds of things. But now it was a C-suite conversation. It was a strategic conversation. How how can we strategically pull this in? Not not in the first year, maybe even the second year, but certainly in the third year. What's the strategic value of this rather than what's the tactical value of hmm increasing attraction and retention, reducing costs, reducing absenteeism, increasing sustainability. You know, those are all very siloed things. And I, mm-hmm. I think for some companies, they 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 get it. And even before the pandemic, the ones that were early adopters, they got it, that, that this is a whole new way of working. And we need to be looking at it very differently, regardless of where people work. I mean, there's nothing that I would recommend a company do to accommodate or to improve remote work that I wouldn't recommend they do even if nobody worked remotely. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I, I'm wondering if leaders understand that this control response, it's applying pressure. It's applying pressure. So it might have short-term gains to get, you know, get somebody to do what you want them to do in that moment. But the long-term is building resentment and then ultimately people will choose to leave if it doesn't really suit the way they're working. And I have to think leaders, that can't be a blindness to that basic 
understanding that, you know, if you were a teenager and your parents told you not to do something, you wanted to do it and you were going to find a way. Like this to me is, is I'm stuck on how we can be in this position where leaders can't see it. Yeah. Well, I think the, you know, the, the personality of a lot of leaders is one that is, is uh, very self-oriented. Yeah. And now to ask them to, you know, be more empathetic is, is something that just isn't really in their nature. I can't name the name of the company, but I was to do a, a webinar. Uh, I was moderating a panel and one of the women on the panel, panel was the head of HR for a, a very large company. Mm-hmm. And the night before, her CEO had made a, a very disparaging announcement about remote work that, it, you know, it was just no good. We were not going to do that. And so like in the, in the, you know, green room before, before we went on, it's like, can I ask you about that? I mean, that, that was pretty, pretty severe. And she said, yeah, you mean, the reality is that he honestly believed that his people wanted to come in, even though they've shown him the surveys that they didn't, he honest, I mean, he just didn't consider that anybody could not be like him. Yeah. I called it the false consensus effect. Right. Where the leader thinks, oh, I work this way. I ran into it last week. There was an executive breakfast morning and someone said, well, I I do all my great admin at home, but any real work, I only do real work in the office. And I said, I'm glad you use the word bias because that's exactly what that is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I said, somebody else could have a hundred percent flip to that. I do great admin in the office. My real work happens at home. And it was like, boof. It was just like a mic drop thing. And, and I think, is it conversation by conversation? We're going to have little aha moments where leaders start to recognize, because to me, that was a profound opportunity to have a moment where that topic came up and we were able to talk about it. And I was able to just like call it right there. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. I think that the media loves to say bad things, you know, that to, to pump up all the bad news, right? Mm-hmm. Eyeballs to advertisers. Yes. Back when Yahoo made its announcement, IBM made its announcement, you know, headlines. There were no headlines around the companies that were doing it really well. Yeah. And there aren't a lot of headlines now of, around the companies that are doing it really well. Mm-hmm. So we're really tainted by that. And the what's the what's the bias confirmation bias mm-hmm. uh, every time there's a, a, a new company yeah. that comes out the ceo who doesn't who, who wants people back in the office see see they're not looking at the other stories yeah. and you know the sad thing is that even if they change their mind they're still going to be perceived negatively by the employees that didn't want to come back. So, you know, we, we bring them back, we bring them back. We realized this was a mistake. Okay, we're going to change. We're going to let them work remotely. That anger is still there. I mean, it's like if somebody had a layoff, you know, it just taints your opinion of that organization going forward, regardless of what they do now. It may inform everything about what I'm doing now in my life. <laughs> Actually, you hit the nail on the head. It's like, oh my gosh, it took me a long time to realize that my departure from my corporate job because of a lack of flexibility. I'm like, you know what? The subway doors are opening. I'm getting in this car. We're having this conversation because the minds that I'm hoping to change to open to possibility here 
will just enable so many more people to contribute. And I, I you know, I, I'm hoping my old boss is paying attention to what I'm doing. I have no idea. We're connected on LinkedIn. So I'm hoping that some of this may be getting through. It was interesting. I reached out to my senior vice president at the time to understand uh, what had happened. I was told that uh, so quick, quick story. I, I was working for a telecom company. So we were selling the company that equipped you to work from home, ironically. Mm -hmm. And my job, I did an, a key task analysis, which is now part of the program that I'm implementing with teams, where you look at your work and you say, where, do, where does this work? You know, where can I best do this work? And how is this work being done? 90% of my job was on the phone. It was phone calls, it was teleconferences, it was phone calls. So I said, you know what? I'll come in 50% of the time. And for any time you need a meeting, I'll come in. Hard no, just not, just not open to it. And so I talked to the senior vice president just a couple of years ago saying, you know, this was 2007, 2008. I said, what was going on then? Because I, you know, I was making it work. Two small kids, they were three and five years old. I, I just was figuring out how to make my life work and contributing fine, no performance issues. She said, oh, I think we wanted then, we wanted everybody's to be in the office for mentorship. We want, and I said, okay, but that word was never used. The year that I was there, there was no structure. There was no conversation about it. This was just supposed to ooze out of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so it, it it struck me as really, I have some strong feelings, obviously, about what happened then. And now I'm seeing, you know what, we really need to crack this conversation wide open so that we can see more people contribute to the workforce. Like the number of people with disabilities have, there's been never more in the workforce. And women. Because of flexibility, right? Actually. I often talk about flexibility is inclusivity, right? It's the it, and so how can we, I challenge leaders when I'm talking with them, and I wonder if this ever comes up for you, what are your perspectives and actions around diversity, equity, and inclusion? Are you mm. still talking about it? Have you gone in totally into DI coma? Or are you, are you still giving this the attention that you know, from a business perspective, makes sense? What are you, what are you seeing around that conversation? Uh, that's one of the things I'm worried most about, because women minorities and other kind of disenfranchised um, populations are most drawn to remote work. Yeah. Uh, if they're the ones that are doing it, and if we don't solve for the uh, equity problems, yeah. you know, being people being getting raises and promotion because they're seen all the time, mm -hmm. uh, those are very real risks. And so if we don't put the checks and balances in place to make sure that doesn't happen, then we're, we're going to even widen the gap. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, that, that really scares me. You know, it's, it's not hard, but it's different and it has to be very intentional and yes. it's good regardless of whether or not people are all together or distributed. Absolutely. This intentionality about inclusion and in, in all the processes, no matter where somebody is, that's part of the training. That's part of the, the leadership development management skills that need to be in place. And I, I'm feeling like we don't spend quite as much time on the how as we should. We spend a lot of time on the tasks and the strategic plan and so on. And we have the team, but how we're actually going to get at this, yeah. we don't spend quite enough time thinking about. We've seen for probably the last two recessions that people who leave or laid off often pick up freelance work 
-hmm. or start their own business. Or now the gig economy makes that even easier. Mm -hmm. And after each recession, fewer and fewer people are coming back. It used to be that recession ends, people go back to the office. Mm -hmm. That's not happening because they found the freedom yes. and they like it. And they, I think in particular with the, the pandemic, because we had so long to experience it, mm -hmm. uh, it's just become ingrained. You know, when you're in a really stressful job, sometimes you don't know it until you get off, of, you get out of it. That's and then you look back and you go, oh, I commuted for two hours every day. I, I you know, traveled all over the world. I can't believe yes. that I did that. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not me anymore. And so I think in the longer run, we're going to see increase in the, the gig economy. Mm -hmm. Charles Hardy, <laughs> is it Hardy or Handy? It's Handy. Uh, back in the 1960s, talked about a shamrock organization where there's this whole outsourced area of maybe HR, maybe facilities management, uh, maybe legal. And then there's this other, the other pedal of the uh, shamrock is was in, in his terms, freelancers, but now it's the gig economy. And I honestly think that that's where we're going because if we really want to, to be the best we can be, then we've got to get all the crap that we do, the 80% of work that we do on a daily basis off our plates. I think artificial intelligence is going to make that easier. And I think the, the combination of internal and external talent markets is going to make that work. So we go out and we hire a, a, a contractor when there's people right here in our organization that, you know, could do the work. I look for the day where I'm typing and do, doing a PowerPoint presentation, you know, planning it and everything. And the keyboard shakes and it says, you know what, you're not very good at this. <laughs> and it's also, <laughs> you know, there's also 10 vetted contractors with their names right here, already have a contract with them that would love to do that. Yes. And by the way, did you also know that Claire... Your, your colleague just did a presentation on this. You know, why don't, why don't you go talk to her? You know, we don't have a handle on the, the internal talent and the internal knowledge. There are some companies that are, are, are moving toward this and I think it's going to be a game changer. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I think there's a lot to be optimistic about, but it's going to take some intention and, and noticing some real noticing. I think of what, what the opportunities are. Starting to get some following. I'm hearing some noise in the market. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. What's, what would you like to say to a leader who's listening that has their ear to the ground on inclusivity and productivity, but is not sure, they're slightly tired? What, what would your invitation to them be? Do the research. You know, don't act on gut. When I walk into a, a leader, you know, the first thing they tell me is it's reducing productivity. It's hurting our innovation. It's dampening our culture. It's reducing engagement. And I say, really, did you measure those things? And none of them have. And so we just have to, again, be very intentional about not making those, those gut assumptions. What was the word you used earlier? The Oh, false consensus effect. And... Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, because there's just too much of that happening. And there are plenty of things to worry about in the increase in hybrid work and distributed work. Plenty of things. Mm -hmm. They're focusing on the wrong ones. Those are not the problems. The research shed says those are not the problems. If they are, if you if you actually measure it in your organization, then do something about it then. But don't just, you know, make multi-million dollar decisions that affect thousands and thousands of people's lives 
Yes. Based on a gut feeling. Yeah. And my sense is people are making those decisions without having any estimate of the cost of that decision. But if you didn't know what the cost of that decision would be, how can you actually honestly say that? Exactly. The human cost, I assume you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. People leaving or checking out, checking out or burning out or quietly quitting or whatever, you know, whatever lesser lessening of engagement will happen because of all of those things. It's yeah. you're going to have a consequence, an unintended consequence that you didn't budget for. And exactly. that's going to surprise you in, <laughs> in unexpected ways. Um, and, and, and before long, you're also going to have to report it to your shareholders, you know, the, the S and ESG. That's uh, right. You know, we're going to be reporting human cap capital measures. How much training do you do every year? What's your flexibility in your workforce? You know, they haven't really decided what those metrics will be yet. But one company that's very proud of those things starts to brag about them in their annual report. Others are going to follow suit. Yeah. And, and we had a couple of banks in Canada just agree to do racial equity audits of the mm -hmm. way they deliver service. Mm -hmm. One bank's already done it for the way they treat their employees. Shareholder driven. So yeah, it's, 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 you know, I guess leaders have their domain, but they have to look outside their domain and say, who, what are people caring about in the broader collective? And it's the, I'm finding it's the individual connections to disability, to neurodivergence, to caregiving, to menopause, to be whatever it is that opens somebody's thinking and now they care. And now it's, so it's happening. We're in a, we're in a, an absolutely shifting uh, environment and leaders who really want to make the most of the, the opportunity now had better listen to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a convergence also of the transparency, just how transparent it is anymore. If, if you do something bad, it's going to come out in the news. <laughs> yes. You can't get away with that stuff anymore. That's mm -hmm. right. That's right. Which is, Wonderful, right? We've got some accountability, some built-in accountability. Exactly. So yeah, so I think leaders, if you haven't followed Kate's work at Global Workplace Analytics, please go there because she's a fount of research and insight and consulting services. And I, I love following you on LinkedIn. There's always something wise and wonderful coming from Kate. So please, <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode, you'll find out where to connect with Kate on social media and LinkedIn and so on. Let us know what resonated with you. Let us know if you're going to ch change what you're doing, if you're going to do some of that research that Kate was talking about. Any final words? Uh, I'm, I'm just so thrilled to have spent time with you today. Yeah, well, it's mutual. You know, I, I like the things that you write about. I like the things that you think about. And we just need to get more people talking about them. Amazing. To <laughs> a fabulous journey together trying to change the world. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kate. <laughs> all right. Take care. You can find all of the Happy Space Podcast episodes over at happyspacepod.com. I love learning what resonates with you, so please leave a comment about this episode over social media, or even better, post a review wherever you tune in. And if you have an idea for a topic to explore or an inclusive action to celebrate, I would love to know more about it. It might even appear in an upcoming episode or an issue of the Happy Space newsletter. Please help me spread the word about people doing great things. After all, doesn't everyone deserve a happy space? Thank you.